1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. This is the 55th message in this book. And so you can turn in your Bibles. You probably got a crease there in your Bibles where the book is. So we've been here a while. And it'll be a little longer before we jump out of this book and into another book. We believe in teaching through the Bible here, verse by verse, and, and just allowing it to minister to your hearts. And so I pray that as we um, have our message this morning, that it won't be my words, but it will be His Word that grips your heart and your soul. Now, we've been looking here in 1 Corinthians, before we read the text, just a little review, um, at the issue of spiritual gifts in the church of Corinth. And we can apply that even to us today in the modern-day church. And today we find ourselves down at verse 7. And we've been, we've been looking at these verses for some time, a couple of weeks, and we've headed it, the, the outline, the problem of spiritual gifts. That's where we have been. And that, that's covered basically in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 12. And so far we looked at the discussion and how it focuses on the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer in the first three verses, and we see that. And then we, last week, we looked a little bit at the differences among the church members, those who make up the body of Christ, and those differences in believers is caused by God. It's caused by the Holy Spirit because he gifts us all differently, and that was verses 4 to 6. Well, today we look at verse 7, and we want to um, this point basically is the design of the gifts as it relates to others and not ourselves. Uh, we all understand if we've been a Christian for any amount of time that the subject of spiritual gifts in the church today is uh, controversial. It's sometimes confusing because there's all kinds of people out there teaching different things. Churches disagree on what the spiritual gifts are. Uh, churches disagree on how many gifts there are. And they also disagree on how these gifts are manifested in the life of a believer. And it seems that everyone has their own opinion on this. And so I want to say right at the outset here that we have a clear teaching here before us um, but sometimes it, it gets muddled by opinion because we don't stick to the text of Scripture. And so we want to make sure that we're making the plain meaning of the, the text known and understood as we go through this portion of very um, difficult, actually, several verses that deal with spiritual gifts. This is not an easy subject to cover. It's not a um, subject that is... Um, embraced by many teachers. As a matter of fact, if you don't believe me, just go look at some commentaries on 1 Corinthians. There's many commentaries. They'll jump over certain verses because they're kind of hard. <laughs> they're kind of difficult. Um, and so it's not an easy subject. But we want to make sure that we look at this discussion of the opening three verses here. We, we looked at this before about how the work of the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And he said there, no man can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what that means is that there's no way that you can come to Christ. There's no way that you can be saved 
Surely an unbeliever, an atheist, could say Jesus is Lord. He could mouth those words. But this is talking about coming from your heart. This is talking about something that you've embraced as your lifestyle, something that you wholeheartedly agree with and adhere to. You can't do that. That's not something that's done on your own. Uh, And then in verses 4 to 6, you know, it tells us the difference of the different gifts. And we went into that in detail. And what's interesting, when you read over those verses 4 to 6, you see that each person of the Godhead is mentioned there. You have the Spirit in verse 4, our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 5, and God the Father in verse 6. And those differences are very prominent. There's a difference in the number of gifts. But the Bible says the Holy Spirit gives them all. They all come from the same source. There's even a difference in the way that a gift is used among individuals. The way we serve the Lord. It may be different. You may have the gift of teaching. I may have the gift of teaching. But we do it differently. Maybe in a different venue. Maybe in a different style. Uh, There are differences as to their effect. As to the effect of our gifts. In other words, there's differences in what our gifts accomplish. That's not up to us. That's up to God. Not all believers, when they have a gift, have all the same results. I mean, that's not rocket science. All you have to do is look at different churches. Some churches are really, really big churches. And God has gifted the leadership of that church to pastor a really, really big church. Other churches are smaller. And God has gifted that pastor to smaller, to, to be able to pastor a smaller church. If those two pastors were to swap places, they wouldn't be in the right place. So we've really done churches a disservice with this whole modern-day church growth movement that says all churches should be big or they're failures. A majority of churches in the United States are less than 100 people. Do you know that? These are faithful pastors who have faithful congregations. They never make the news. They're never on the front page of anything. And so what's important to understand is that we're called to be faithful to what God has called us to, and how God has gifted us. We're not called to look at our gift and go, gee, I didn't want that gift. I want that gift. See, that's what the Corinthian church was doing. They weren't satisfied with the way God has gifted them. And so there's differences in in all these things. And back in 1 Corinthians 4, 1-2, it tells us that it is required that a steward be found faithful. See, we're all going to be held account, beloved, for being faithful in everything that the Lord has given us. Whether that's our resources, whether that's our children, whether that's our spouse, whether that's our family, our job, our spiritual gifts. He's going to hold us to account. And we are called to be faithful, a steward being found faithful. So let's look here at verse 7. We'll pick up here. And if you're following along, we're, we're take, talking about the problem of spiritual gifts in the opening 11 verses here. And we're at point three, the design of the gifts. And so I just want to read our text for us, verses 7 to 11. We're not going to get through this, unfortunately, today, but we'll get through some of it. So it says in verse 7, Paul writes, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. 
and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings. That's a plural there, by the way. By the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. Gift of discernment, you might say. To another, various kinds of tongues or languages. To another, the interpretation of those languages. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Father, we ask your blessing upon the reading of your word this morning and our study together. Pray that you would apply it to our hearts as only you can. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, according to verse 7 here, we see the design of the gifts. And this is a very important point. As it relates to others, not yourself. Not yourself. Um, When it talks there about the manifestation of the Spirit, this is the producing of the gifts. This is the work of the Spirit. This isn't something that you can produce on your own. Manifestation is used twice here. Other forms of the word are are used, it's used about 93 times in the New Testament. And the basic idea of this word manifestation of the Spirit basically is to make known, to make evident, you might say, or to become clear. That is what spiritual gifts do. When you utilize your spiritual gift, you're making clear to others that there's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your life. They are given to us to make the Holy Spirit known, to make it clear and evident in the church and in the world. So when you see someone who's gifted, we don't praise that person for their gifted ability. Unfortunately, that's what happens. (laughs) But that shouldn't happen. We should be praising God, that God gifted that person with a certain gift that's blessing the body of Christ. Because it has nothing to do with you. It's a gift. It's something that came from outside of you. And so they manifest the Spirit. The gifts are called to manifest the Spirit, to make the Spirit known. And, and really, the, the meaning is the opposite of hidden or private. And I bring that up because... You know, when we talk about the design of spiritual gifts, we ask God, why, what's your purpose in gifting people as individuals with different spiritual gifts? What's the purpose behind this, God? See, there's an argument in the church today that, well, the reason we're giving spiritual gifts is so that we can build ourselves up, (laughs) that we can edify ourselves. You hear people say this all the time. That's not taught anywhere in the Bible at all. As a matter of fact, just the opposite is taught. Spiritual gifts are never given to be hidden by others or to be used privately, as some say. You hear this a lot in the charismatic movement, especially people who claim they have the gift of tongues or languages, as I call it, because that's the proper Greek word. They say, well, I, I go home in my prayer closet and I can speak in tongues all by myself. And Paul will get to that. We'll get to that section where Paul talks about that. And he's like, what are you doing that for? That's not helping anybody. 
So we never want to practice our spiritual gifts for our own benefit. That's not why it was given. That's not why they're given to us. They're always given to manifest the Holy Spirit and to edify the body of Christ, to put him on display. So God doesn't give us gifts to bless ourselves. That's a very important point. It's not taught anywhere in the Bible. He gives us gifts so that we can bless other people, to build up other people. That's why it's so important that you're part of a church. See, if you're not part of a local fellowship, guess what? You're not using your spiritual gift the way God designed it to be used. You know, the idea of sitting at home and watching some pastor on the TV or video screen thinking that that's going to, that's all you need, that's, that's a fallacy in your thinking. We are called out. That's what the church is, called out ones. We're called together as the body of Christ. And part of that togetherness is the use of our spiritual gifts to bless each other. It's not for self-edification. The Bible even says in, 15, in Romans 15, look over there real quick, Romans 15, that we're not to please ourselves. Verses 1 and 2, it says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And it says, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us, look at what it says, verse 2, please his neighbor for his good, to edify him, to build him up. We don't use our spiritual gifts to edify ourselves or to build ourselves up. So he says here the manifestation of the Spirit. Notice he doesn't say in verse 7, the manifestation of spiritual gifts. You see that? He didn't say that. He says the manifestation of the Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That means to put the Spirit on display, to put it into operation. In this context, it's speaking specifically about spiritual gifts. And according to the Bible, what the gifts are is the person of the Holy Spirit working in your life and in mine. That's what the gifts are. And however he chooses to do that, he chooses to do so. Now, we saw in a previous message what spiritual gifts are not, I think, in the first or second message. But it's very dangerous to think that somehow your spiritual gift is your human ability. That's not a spiritual gift. It's not talking about your talents that you just have naturally. It's not talking about your abilities. It's not even talking about your, your educational background. Now, all of that can be used by God together with your spiritual gift. Okay, that's, that's fine. But see, we think sometimes that our spiritual gift is just something we add to our life and it, it just helps us do stuff better. That's not what the Bible teaches. The point of spiritual gifts is simply that they're not based on your education. They're not based on natural talents. Now, he can use all that for his glory, clearly, and he does, but we need to understand that it is the work of the Spirit very definitely in our lives that we have any spiritual gift whatsoever. Now, having said that, we need to talk a little bit about the work of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have asked questions over the the past several weeks about this, 
And it's important to understand what the work of the Spirit is. And so just there's 12 things here. We're going to take our time going through these today. That's why I said we'll probably get through verse 7. That's about it. But the work of the Holy Spirit involves 12 things in Scripture. If you were to do a um, theological study on the Holy Spirit, no doubt these words would just pop up. If you looked in a systematic theology book or something like that and looked under the Holy Spirit, you would find these words there, no doubt. Well, the first one is there in your outline, conviction. Conviction of what? Conviction of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. That's one of the jobs, that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. You might be sitting here today and you might be asking the question, well, why did you come to believe in Christ? Why did you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior whenever you did? You know, if you're sitting here this morning and you say, well, you know, I was just kind of interested and, you know, I went to a church service and I heard the messages and I drew my own conclusion and I just thought, oh, that's a good decision. It's a good lifestyle. That's not true conversion. Actually, the Bible says the reason why all this is happening in our lives, why we come to Christ, why, the, why, why God works at all, is through the Holy Spirit of God. And he works with the t- timing of the Lord, and he's working in your heart, he's working in my heart. And he knew that, you know, all the way back in 1979, when I came to Christ, what it would take. He knew the different discussions I would have to have. And he used all that to bring me to a point of decision. I mean, make no doubt about it. You, you have to come to a decision of what you're going to do with Christ. Don't buy in to the theology that says, well, you just got to sit back and if God's going to save you, he's going to save you. You don't have to do anything. It's all God. It's all God. It is all God. But he works through you. As an individual, he works through your volition, he works through your will, and he brings you to a point as he orchestrates the purpose for your life, and he brings you to a point of decision. And you come to a point where you realize, yeah, I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I've fallen short of God's glory. And you know what? God is offering me a free gift of forgiveness and salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when I read the Bible, it tells me that he lived a life of 30-some years, a perfect life here on earth. He came down, he was born of a virgin, he lived a perfect life, and then he died on a cross. A death that he didn't deserve. But he willingly took upon himself the sins of all those who would put their faith and trust in Christ. And he did so to secure their salvation. He died a specific death on the cross. He died for Steve Converse. He died for Ken Saragusa. He died for Michael and Sam and go through the congregation. So the Bible says the reason all that happened, how God orchestrated all that, was through the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. So it's the conviction of sin as well as righteousness and judgment. And he puts it all together. So that we don't have to face that. And he brings us to a point where we say, boy, I am in a real fix here. I don't have anywhere else to go. I need this burden of sin lifted from me and forgiven. I've tried everything under the sun. I've tried to work at my religion. I've tried to do this and do that. Nothing's worked. I guess I'll try Christ. I'm going to come to Christ. 
In John chapter 16, it tells us about how the Holy Spirit brings conviction. He says in verse 6, John 16, uh, verse, I'll start in verse 6, it says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, this is Jesus, it is to your advantage that I go away. He's talking about going away from his disciples. For if I do not go away, the helper, guess who the helper is? The Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity. Verse 8, and when he comes, look at what he does. He will convict the world concerning sin. We were all part of the world at one point. None of us were born without sin. None of us were born perfect. And we needed this conviction in our lives to come to Christ. And so he says that he will convict the world of, of the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He points out, yeah, we have fallen short of God's glory. But you know what else he points out? He also points out, guess what? There's no righteousness in you alone that can save you. You can try all day long to earn righteousness. It's not going to work. So what happens when you're convicted of your sin and you are in fear of God's judgment? You realize you don't have the righteousness to stand before a holy God because you're a sinner, desperate need of God's grace. And the only way you will ever receive any righteousness at all is to throw yourself upon the feet of God and ask him to save you and to give to you the righteousness that Christ possesses. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. When he died on the cross, here was the transaction. He lived a perfect life, so he was a perfect Savior. He was the perfect Lamb of God, the Bible says. And when he hung on that cross, he didn't deserve to be there. He never did anything wrong. But he willingly went to that place of sacrifice so that the Father could put on him our sin. Everyone who is saved He took their sin, and he put it on Christ. And that's why Christ had to hang on the cross and bear the weight of our sin and receive the wrath of God. That's why it was kind of an intimidating thing for Christ to go to that. I don't even think it was the physical stuff. You know, you watch the Passion of the Christ, it's all about the physical suffering. And I'm sure... That was great, don't get me wrong. But the physical suffering of Christ did not save us, beloved. There was a lot of people back in that time that endured the same suffering as Christ, physically. There's people today that certain countries are crucified and endure pain and the anguish of that horrible death. But see, what made Christ different was that he was perfectly righteous. He didn't deserve to die. And God put upon him all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in him. And when he did that, he said, you know what? I'm going to take your sin from you, and I'm going to put it on my son on the cross. And if it would have stopped there, guess what? We wouldn't have been saved. Because we still would have been unrighteous. 
Maybe our sins were gone, but it probably would have taken 30 seconds before before we create another sin, right? I mean, that's just the way we are. So what did God have to do? God had to take the righteousness of his own son, the perfect Savior, and give it to us. Impute it, the word is, to us. Account it to our record. Reckoned us righteous, even though we weren't. And so when God looks at someone who's put their faith and trust in Christ and is saved, he doesn't see someone whose life is filled with sin and is unholy. He sees someone who is righteous like his son is righteous. What a glorious blessing that is. And guess what? You don't have to work for it. There's nothing you can do to work for it. It's a gift of God's grace. But it comes through the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. Verse 9, it says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. That's a sin that will damn you to hell. People ask all the time, was there an unforgivable sin today? Well, a lot of times they'll speak of the Gospels where it talks about Jesus. And, you know, when they, when they attributed to Christ the works of Satan, they said, well, he does these miracles, but he does them by the power of Satan. And Jesus wants to say, well, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's not going to be forgivable. That's an unforgivable sin. Well, technically, that sin in the context of the Gospels can't be committed today. It can't. It's impossible. You know why? Where is Jesus? He's in heaven. He's not out in Redwood City healing people. He doesn't give them the opportunity to go to one of his healing opportunities and say, Oh, Jesus, I see the miracles you're doing, but you're doing them by, the, by Satan, by Beelzebub. That can't be done physically today. So in the context of that sin in relationship to Jesus, that can't be done today. But you can commit a sin that will lead to ultimate hell and judgment by not believing in Christ, by not yielding to the conviction that the Holy Spirit is bringing in your life to show you your inadequacies, to show you your sinfulness, to show you your unrighteousness, and then to give you the answer. Here is the answer. The answer is in Christ. And you hear all this and you discern it. But it has to bring you to a point of decision. Just in, like in the New Testament, when Jesus called his disciples. Guess what? There was a time in Matthew's life where he had to look at his tax-gathering booth and all the money that he was making when Christ said, you follow me. He had to make a decision to say, okay, (laughs) I'm going to leave all this and follow this guy I just met. Or the other disciples who were fishermen. They had to make a decision. Yeah, I'm going to leave all that behind and I'm going to follow this guy. It's the same way today. When we present the gospel to someone, we need to make sure that we're doing our due diligence to help them understand, yeah, this is a work of God. Salvation is not decisionally based. We don't preach that you're saved by a decision. But God uses a decision to allow you to commit to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... It's very important that we understand the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
And he says there in verse 10, he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And so Jesus points out very clearly that the Holy Spirit has a role of conviction in our hearts. Second word there, conversion. Conversion or regeneration. We can think of it that way. Regeneration simply means being born again, being saved. You know, some people don't use the word born again anymore. They feel it's old-fashioned. It's biblical. It's a great description of what happens to someone who comes to Christ. It's a spiritual birth. You are born from above. And it have, even has similarities to physical birth. The idea of a new life. When you give birth to a baby, that's a new life. Brand new. But there's also major differences. So we have the conviction first, and then we have conversion or the regeneration. And, and Jesus said in, in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, he says there in verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. This is a great little portion of Scripture. A ruler of the Jews. So here you have this very religious person. He's a ruler within the Jewish community. And it says the man, verse 2, came to Jesus by night. Why? Because it probably wasn't a popular thing for one of the Jewish leaders to go to this guy who was causing all this problem in their society and stealing all their, their converts away. It was very much a competition amongst these religious leaders. That's why they were so upset with Christ and the disciples because they had thousands and thousands of people following them. So he went to Jesus by night, and he said, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So what did Nicodemus see? He saw the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life through these miraculous signs. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man, or in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's, that's a pretty bold statement. That's a pretty just upfront statement. Jesus didn't go into his religion. He didn't talk about what he was doing. He didn't talk about his personality. He didn't talk about anything. He just said, hey, look, look, pal, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to be born again. <laughs> it's real simple. You can't see the kingdom of God the place where God dwells, heaven, unless you're born again, born from above. And Nicodemus asks a very practical question. Look in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? It doesn't make any sense. See, he's not thinking spiritually. He's thinking only physically. He's thinking with his flesh. And he asks the question, can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Kind of crazy. Jesus answered. Look at what he says. He doesn't really explain it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're thinking about the flesh. I'm not talking about the flesh. That's which is born of the spirit is spirit. Verse 7, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then he asked, tells him this in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. I remember when my sister Sue Ellen was alive, 
in the fall in Pennsylvania, you have lots of leaves, and they'd be out on the front lawn, and we'd be sitting on the front porch or in the living room looking out, and the wind would be blowing. And she'd always say this, look at the wind! And my brother-in-law would always say, Sue, you can't see the wind. <laughs> You're looking at the effects of the wind. Well, whatever. Well, that's the way it is with the Spirit of God. That's what it is. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, it's the Spirit of God that causes us this new birth, that causes us regeneration. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Remember who he's talking to here? He's talking to believers. He says, You are not in the flesh, believer, but you are in the Spirit. If, conditional, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Guess what? You can call yourself a Christian all day long. You can go to church 24-7. You can pray on your knees till they're bloody. You can give all your money away to the poor. But you know what? If you don't have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you're not going to heaven. You're not born again. That's what he says. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Or Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 7. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's kind of our BC life, before Christ life. But verse 4, what a wonderful verse this is. But when, but, 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 but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Verse 5, he saved us. He saved us. It was his work. He did it. It goes on, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Guess why? Because we don't have any. (laughs) We don't have any works of righteousness. All of our works are considered as a filthy rag, something to be tossed in the garbage can outside of Christ. Not because of works of, done by us in righteousness, but look, according to his own what? Mercy. His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration... Oh, and look at this. And renewal, guess what? Of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. How did it happen? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, it's that washing of regeneration, that renewal by the Holy Spirit that causes us to be regenerate, that causes us to be converted. Even in First Peter, several places, chapter 1, verse 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, look at what it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You see the Holy Spirit's role 
is not just one of conviction. If it ended there, we'd be in a world of hurt. You know, a lot of us at times feel sorry for our sin, but we don't do anything about it. (laughs) That's not good. There's many people that come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They don't do anything about it. They don't listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They tune it out. And that's where their hearts and their minds grow hard and cold and callous to the things of God. You know, that's what a callus is, right? If you have a callus on your hand, if you ever had a callus or on your foot. You know, I tried this one time on, on my hand. I stuck a pin right in my callus. Just didn't even hurt. You can even twist the pin around and the skin, it wouldn't hurt. Why? Because it's dead skin. It's just a callus. It's something that's built up. And that's what happens sometimes when people don't hear the conviction and, and are not converted. They're hearing truth, but after a while, it just bounces off. That's very scary, very scary place to be in. See, when you're converted, you kind of get a DNA change. God changes who you are. According to the Bible, you become a partaker of the divine nature, the Bible says, and something happens inside of you. It doesn't have to be some dynamic experience. It could be a quiet peace. But what it signifies is that you've been born from above. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. And the Bible says one day that new nature will come forth in all its glory. See, we're still in this fleshly body, this body of sin. And so the Bible says our old nature died when we came to Christ. Now we have a new nature. The problem is we're kind of like a caterpillar. We're, we're stuck in this shell, right? And it's, it's, it's not until one day when we break out of the shell and we fly away like a beautiful butterfly. Right now we're just this little worm because <laughs> we're stuck in this body but we have this new nature that just wants to explode within us but one day through the work of the holy spirit we will fly away and we will be made the bible says like the lord himself in first john 3 2 it says beloved we are god's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared That's why we still struggle with sin. But it says, but we know that when he appears, guess what? We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is in all his glory. I don't know about you, but I long for that day when we leave this shell of a body behind and we are able to experience worshiping God in a glorified manner without the presence of sin. What a glorious day that would be. Well, third... Not just conviction and conversion, but also convincing, convincing of our present relationship to Jesus Christ. You could call this assurance, that the Holy Spirit gives you assurance. There's a lot of people today, unfortunately, even Christians, that doubt their personal relationship with God. They doubt it. All these doubts fill their mind continuously. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit, the inward man, what we are inside. In other words, he convinces us that we belong to God or maybe that we don't. (laughs) Look at what it says in Romans chapter 8 verses 14 to 17. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
But you have received the spirit of adoption as, what, sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself, once again, he's a person, bears witness with our spirit that we might be, does it say that? No. Could be? No. It says that we are. A definitive statement. We are children of God. And if we're children, conditional, then heirs. You have to be a child of God in order to be an heir. You know, it wouldn't do you any good to go over to your neighbor and say, hey, I heard your great uncle died. What, what, what's my part of the will? Well, guess what? You're not even related to them, right? You're not an heir. Guess what? You, don't, you get nothing. Zippo. So he says, if children, then heirs. Heirs of who? Not your great uncle. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. Think about that. We're in, in God's structure. We're, we're standing right, right with Christ. We're alongside of him. And then he says this, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. You know, glorification doesn't come without a cost. It costs Christ, and he says it will cost us. See, that's the problem a lot of times with the modern-day church. People come to Jesus, quote, for all the goodies that he's going to give them. It's like he's a divine Santa Claus. Oh, he'll help your marriage. He'll help your job. He'll help you this. He'll help you that. What about your soul? What about the part of you that's going to live on? After you die, you're not going to care about your job then. You're not going to care about your money. You're not even going to care about your family then. What are you going to care about? You're going to care about where you spend eternity. And the Bible says very clearly that God offers us a free gift of salvation if you're willing to come to him and say, Lord, I just want to trust you with my eternal soul. Not an easy life to be a Christian. We're seeing that more and more. I heard somebody the other day say, oh, the church is under persecution here in the United States. You know what, beloved? We don't even know what persecution is here in the United States. We don't have a clue. Oh, well, they're threatening to close down all the churches. That's not persecution. Persecution is when they come in and say, okay, you know what? You're going to jail because you're here. And they put you in handcuffs and they haul you off to a COVID-inhabited jail. There's obviously a lot of, lot of cells there. They're, they got a lot of space because they leave all the criminals out, right? Makes a whole lot of sense to me. Let's lock up the people that are trying to do good in our community. First John 5, 6 to 13, it says this, is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And it says this, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has 
born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God, guess what? You've made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Gave it to us, a free gift of his grace. And this life is where? It's in his son. Verse 12, whoever has the son, it's open. See, this is the thing we forget. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever shall come to me, Jesus says. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Speaking of eternal life, I write these things to you. Why do you write these, John? You who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, guess what, know that you have eternal life. If you're a Christian here today, you don't have to go on doubting your salvation if God has truly converted you and saved you and caused you to be born again. You possess the very Spirit of God. He doesn't want you to doubt his power to save you. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. You know, when you know something for certain, without a doubt, doesn't it give you a little spring in your step? I mean, if the boss called you Monday morning, hey, you know what, you need to come in and see me right away. But if you knew what the boss was going to say to you, okay, that would help you adjust your, your own thinking to that meeting. Maybe he was real stern on the phone and you're worrying all day, oh, he's going to fire me, he's going to fire me. But his intention is to give you a raise. If you knew that in advance, you wouldn't be worried all day. You'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll come in and see you. See, we know how this chapter ends. We know how the book ends. We know how the story ends. We know that we can have eternal life to a believing heart if you're truly born again, as you study the Bible and you look at what it says about Jesus Christ, what it says about the Holy Spirit, what it says about God the Father. I mean, think about it. The Holy Spirit is the true author of this book. It was through the Holy Spirit that men wrote this book. It says they were carried along, they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. He guided all the writers as to what they wrote when they wrote it. And it was truly as God intended it. The Holy Spirit can't make mistakes because he's God. And the Holy Spirit of God takes what is in this book and what does he do? He brings assurance to your doubts. The worst place you could go when you're doubting God is away from God. Because the only way you're going to resolve those doubts is to go back to God and run to his word. And look for assurance. I mean, if you're not a believer, you read the Bible and you go, that's a bunch of nonsense. Can't believe people read this stuff. But if you're believing, all of a sudden you have the Holy Spirit within you. And it's convincing you of your relationship with Christ. It's making the words of these pages jump off into your soul, into your heart. We also know from the book of 1 John chapter 5, it says the Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth about Jesus Christ. 
In 1 John 3.24, it says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, in God and him. And by this, we know that he abides in us. How do we know? By the Spirit whom he has given us. So we see the conviction, the conversion, the convincing. Fourth word, confidence. The confidence of our future blessing in Christ. Or the, you could say the sealing of the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, 22, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, it says. That is why it is through him that we can utter our amen to God for his glory. Verse 21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put, also put his, what's it say, seal on us, a guarantee. And what has he done? He's given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's also mentioned over in Ephesians 1. In him you also, verse 13, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That word guarantee, Erebon, in the original language, it refers to an engagement ring. When someone's about to get married or they're going to get married, what do they do? They usually go buy their spouse, their wife, an engagement ring. Why? It's a promise. It's saying, I have intentions to walk you down the aisle one day, to marry you. Well, the Holy Spirit is like an engagement ring. It's a deposit. And it's looking forward to the wedding when Jesus Christ returns. That's what the day we're sealed onto. And so the Holy Spirit brings conviction, conversion, convincing, confidence quickly. The fifth one, connection to the body of Christ. This is important. It speaks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This isn't something you pray for. This is something that happens the moment you're saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, just down a couple verses from where we're at, it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into what? One body doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Greek. doesn't matter whether you're a slave or a free person. It says you were all made to drink of one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. See, the unity of the body of Christ comes from being connected together by the very Spirit of God. As the body of Christ, nobody here is better than anyone else. If you think that way, drive that thought far away because that's not from God. That's from Satan. We're all on an equal plane here today. We all stand on equal ground before the Lord. We all stand as sinners in need of his grace. Maybe some of us are converted. Some of us have come to Christ. Maybe some of us haven't. But we're all on the same plane. We're all in the same problem. We're all in the same boat. And the boat's going down fast. Just look around you. And the connection to the body of Christ is very, very important. And it comes through the very Spirit of God. That's what makes us one. You know, we're not all one, folks, because we all like the same thing. Amen? I mean, just take TV, for example. 
Just think about it for a second. We could go around the room and I, you, you might find another person that likes some things. I mean, some people like comedies. Some people like dramas. You know, my wife loves comedies. She'll sit down and watch these old crazy comedies from years ago. She'll be cracking up and I'll be sitting there. She goes, don't you think that's funny? I'm like, no. Is there a cop show on or something? <laughs> Why? I like reality shows. I mean, that's what I like. Stuff like that. It, we're different. Some people like dramas, reality, whatever it might be. We're not all the same. Some people eat steak. Some people eat chicken. Some people eat fish. Some people don't eat any meat at all. They eat vegetables. Some of us, we eat anything. We don't care. Just give us some food. I'm saying, hurry up because I'm getting hungry. See, the purpose of church, beloved, is not to make us carbon copies of each other. That's exactly the opposite of what the Spirit of God wants to accomplish. In other words, the Spirit of God allows us to agree to disagree. What makes us one in the life of the Holy Spirit, in the the body, is that the Holy Spirit resides within each one of us. That's why you can go on vacation and you can go to a church a thousand miles away from here. You've never been there before. They've never met you. And you walk in and you just have a bond with these people. Why? You don't even know them. They could be a bunch of axe murderers. You don't know, but something inside you says, no, this is a good place to go. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ is there. The Holy Spirit is there. Very important to understand that we are called to be one in Christ. See, if you don't understand this point, what happens is we try to make other people like us. Well, they're, they have that gift. Well, they're not using it the way I would. <laughs> How dare they? You end up with a very bland church. So you have this connection to the body of Christ. Sixthly, you have a Christ-likeness in all we think, say, and do. This is really transformation, metamorphosis in the original language is, is what this, where this comes from. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says this in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Don't look at the world and say, gee, I want to be like them. Don't conform to that. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Also in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it talks about we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, it says, into the same image from one degree to another. It's a gradual process. You don't just get saved and you're like Jesus because you're still in this body, you're still in the flesh. He's got to chip away parts of you that you don't even know are there yet. And it seems the longer you know the Lord, the more you see your sin. (laughs) For this comes from the Lord, it says, who is the Spirit in verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3. What's happening here is that through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, he's continually transforming you so that you act and react more like Christ. Now, we all blow it. We all sin. That's because we're not following the lead of the Holy Spirit in our life. 
we're, we're turning off the filling of the Spirit, the control of the Spirit, and we're saying, you know what, I'm going to do this my way according to the flesh. That's when we end up in a sinful situation. But the Holy Spirit wants to work in us and through us, even through difficult times, hard situations, and he wants to allow us to act more like Christ would act in those situations. I mean, if we look around this room, I'm sure there's people in this room, I know there are, that before they came to Christ, I probably wouldn't want to meet them on the street, especially like in a dark alley at night. Uh, No thanks. Because they've told me what God has saved them from. We all have that story, basically. But what happened? They came to know Christ. God transformed them. His love, his compassion, his grace, his mercy filled their lives, and it's evident. Why? Why does all that happen? It's the Holy Spirit at work. You don't praise that individual. Gee, I really like how you cleaned your life up there, pal. You're like a whole new person. You must have worked really hard at that. They didn't do a thing. It's the Spirit of God that's doing his job transforming us day by day to be more like Christ. Seventhly, control. Control of our sinful desires. This speaks of the fruit of the the Spirit. We're going to go through this quickly. Galatians 5, it says there, if we walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It tells you what the desires of the flesh are. But down in verse 22, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, it's singular. It's not plural. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In verse 25, he says this is who... Uh, th- those belong to, who belong to Jesus Christ. But in verse 25, it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In other words, what he's saying is the Holy Spirit produces fruit in your life that actually allows you to control your sinful desires and behaviors. You can read the same thing over in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 14. But we also see here, eighth word, not just control, but change, a change in our attitudes. A change in our attitudes. I mean, some of you can see it yourself. Some of you can see it in others. When they come to Christ, there's a change in their attitude. This comes from the filling of the Spirit. This is spoken of in Ephesians chapter 5. See, the difference between the baptism of the Spirit, let me just say this. The baptism of the Spirit happens at one time, the moment you become saved. That's how you become part of the body of Christ. It's a one-time deal. There's not multiple baptisms of the Spirit. Today, in the charismatic movement, you have people praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't understand what it is. If you're praying for the Holy Spirit to baptize you, you're not in Christ. I'm sorry. That's how you become part of the body of Christ. You're baptized. But the filling of the Spirit, as we see in Ephesians 5... It says, don't get drunk with wine, verse 18. That is wrong. This is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. It should really say, but be continually filled. Continue to be filled. What's that word filled mean? Well, in the context, if you're drunk with wine and you see somebody who's drunk, guess what's controlling their behavior? Alcohol, right? Or if you see somebody who's on drugs and they're acting really weird. Well, if they're on drugs, they're being controlled by that drug or that alcohol. What Paul is saying here in Ephesians is, don't allow other things to control you. As a Christian, 
you be filled, you be controlled by the very Spirit of God that I gave you to dwell within you. He says, when you do that, you're going to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual singing, making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything in God the Father in the name of Jesus. These are all attitudes. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, when you're filled with the Spirit and someone comes up to you and insults you, guess what? You handle it in a Christ-honoring way. Now, there may be days when you're not controlled, but you're controlled by your flesh. Maybe you've had a tough day at work or whatever, and the guy in front of you is driving two miles an hour in the 50-mile-an-hour lane, and you just want to get home, and you're thinking, what is this guy doing? And the tension begins to build and build and build. Well, eventually it builds so much, guess what? You just check out to the Spirit of God, and you're just in a blind rage. See, this happens in life. So we need to be controlled by the Spirit. Well, ninthly, comfort. Comfort in our trials. Intercession. John 14 speaks of this. He says, I'll ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive. Why? Because they're rejecting truth. They're rejecting Christ because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells, look, with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Romans 8, verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes, it says. And guess what? It's, it's with groanings too deep for words. So these people that are speaking in tongues and uttering all this craziness and saying, oh, this is the spirit language that I'm praying with and this is the spirit interceding. Well, guess what it says here? It won't even come out of your mouth if the spirit does this. It can't. It's too deep for words or any sounds for that matter. And it says, verse 27, he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So there's that intercession that the Spirit provides for us. Tenth word here, calling. Calling or guidance, some people say. You see this throughout the book of Acts. You have the text there. You can read them on your own. But it's just really basically talking to us about that God leads us. He guides us by his Holy Spirit. Sometimes on a daily basis. In Acts chapter 16, they were trying to go through this certain area, but it says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word, to speak the word in Asia. The Holy Spirit said, "Uh, you're going this direction. I I don't want you to go that way. It doesn't tell us how he forbid. He could have caused a rainstorm, mudslide, whatever. But the Spirit of God said, no, you're going to go over here instead. That's why we need to be sensitive to the Spirit leading in our lives. Because he's guiding us. If we just go out of this building and say, yeah, I got this, I got this, no problem. I'll figure this out on my own, this Christian thing. You're going to end in failure every time. Why? Because you're not depending on the Spirit as your guide. 
you know, sometimes people go away, they go on hikes, and they, sometimes they're in a very remote place, and they have to hire a guide, right? You hire a guide to take you to where you need to be for your fishing trip or your hunting trip. Why do you do that? For your own safety. Because they know the way. They know where to go, where not to go. They know what berries to eat, what not berries to eat. They know all the stuff about the land. And you're paying this guide to take you to somewhere that you want to go. Well, this is what the Holy Spirit does on a daily basis for us. And if we just go off, you know, trusting in our own wisdom, in our own insight, saying, yeah, I got this, it's not going to work out. Number 11, concern about the lost or the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be, look at what it says, how will that power be manifested? It doesn't really necessarily talk about gifts here, but it says, you will be my witnesses. See, there's something about when the Holy Spirit takes control of your life and you come to Christ, and we've all experienced this if we've come to Christ, all of a sudden there is kind of a new empowerment to share our new life with other people. We want to tell people about Jesus. We're not ashamed of it. We're not afraid of it. There's a boldness to us all of a sudden. It's talking about the freedom to express your faith to others without embarrassment. That's what Paul says in Romans 1.16, right? He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why are you ashamed of the gospel, Paul? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the only way people can be saved is through the gospel. So as a Christian, it's far be it from you to be ashamed, to be unwilling to speak up. For the cause of Christ. And guess what? The Holy Spirit empowers us with a burden and a concern for the loss. And you know what? The opposite is true. Even for a Christian, I would say this. A Christian who's not yielding to the control of the Spirit. A Christian who's not yielded to the filling of the Spirit. And they're they're controlled by their flesh and they're in sin. Guess what? One of the first things to go out the door is their prayer life. The second thing is a burden for the lost. They, They could care less about the lost. Why? Because they got a giant mess in their own life, and that's the only thing they can focus on. They're so focused on dealing with their own sinfulness, the last thing they want to think about is a lost person. And the fact that they have the antidote to save that person through the gospel of Christ. As a believer, you get caught up in sin, you, you can care less if anybody comes to Christ. You're just trying to make it through the day. Am I right? That's true. And so this concern for the lost comes from the power of the Spirit. And the last word here quickly, commitment. Commitment of different ministries for the encouragement of believers or the gifts. Down in verse 11, it says, All these, verse, uh, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 11, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So when you think about the work of the Holy Spirit, think of conviction, conversion, convincing, confidence, connection, Christ-likeness, control, change, comfort, calling, concern, and commitment. And we'll cover the rest of the verse next week, I guess. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the work of the Spirit within us. And Lord, the design of these gifts is not for ourselves. They're not to bring us glory. They're not... 
for us to do anything other than give praise and honor and glory to you. Because it's your Holy Spirit that is working through these gifts in our lives. This isn't something that we can do on our own. And Father, we pray that as believers we would begin as we continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians to begin to understand our own giftedness spiritually. And whether or not we're using those gifts by serving within the body of Christ, how you want us to serve. Lord, we know it's not for ourselves. We know it's not so we just get a pat on the head or that a boy or anything like that. But Lord, we do it for your glory. But Lord, we thank you for that deposited guarantee of your spirit in the life of a believer. That it guarantees us a ticket to the kingdom of, of heaven. And Father, without that, no one will ever see heaven in all eternity. But their heart and their, their soul will be doomed and damned to an eternity that is apart from you in a place called hell. A place of torment. A place where they will be encountering the wrath of God each and every day for all eternity. No, we don't ever desire anyone to go to hell. And so, Father, as Christians, I pray that we would be clear in our stance, be clear with our expression of the gospel, be clear in the way we live for Christ, that it would be the way that you draw all men to yourself so that many will be saved and secure their place in glory. If you're here today and you have yet to trust the Lord as your uh, Lord and Savior, it's, it's not hard, it's not difficult. It's, you, you need to first admit that you're a sinner, admit that you have a need. And secondly, admit that Christ is the Savior, the one who can, one and only one who can meet your need. And when you cry out to him with a heart, that is sincere, and you say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Save me from my sin. I want to spend all eternity in heaven with you. That's a prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart that God will answer. and He will transform you, and he will gift you with that deposit of the Holy Spirit, and you will see transformation in your life. It doesn't come from you. It comes from the Spirit of God. But we pray, Lord, you would do your work here today. In and through us, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.